Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey, this is the first of the last batch of recordings from last year's ATX Television Festival. The best television festival in Austin or anywhere. Uh, it really is fun. If you guys haven't been to ATX, what's stopping you? Uh, this year it is June 7th through 10th. Uh, in Austin, you can go to atxfestival.com to get badges. Uh, they've already announced a whole bunch of awesome things for this year's lineup, including um, a whole thing, a whole conversation with Freeform about the sort of shows they're doing and uh, millennial programming. Uh, they got folks from Queen Sugar coming. They've got folks from Drunk History doing an interactive panel. Uh, the new uh, audience network, Condor, based on... Uh, Three Days of the Condor, uh, there's a TV show. And that's going to be there. Uh, American Woman, a whole bunch of really cool things. So that's the stuff that's already announced. There's even more great stuff coming. Once again, it is June 7th through 10th in Austin. Uh, ATXFestival.com to get badges, which do it. Welcome your moderator. He is executive editor, editor of IndieWire and the editor at large at Variety, Michael Schneider. Uh, well, let me bring out our panelists and uh, we'll have a fun hashtag uh, style conversation. So, uh, first off, uh, his credits include The Middleman, and now he's working on the new uh, adaptation of The Dark Crystal, Mr. Javier Grigio, Mark's Watch. <laughs> He's behind Royal Pains and also the new CBS thriller Instinct, Michael Roche. She's behind The Vampire Diaries, The Originals, and so much more, Julie Pleck. His credits include House of Cards and the new Hulu Mars drama, The First, Mr. Bo Willimon. Uh, her credits include Casual and Life Unexpected, Miss Liz Tigelar. And finally, his credits include Queen Sugar and Underground, Mr. Paul Garns. Let's let's start off. I mean, first first off, um, you know, with the news changing so fast, I mean, we also got to talk about the UK and what's going on there today as well. Uh, like literally, you you go off Twitter for half an hour and you come back, and the world has completely changed. And, and as storytellers, that must be just nerve wracking. I mean, first off, how do you even keep up, and how do you pay attention when you've got jobs, you've got other things going on? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a show about a, a planet that's been invaded by turtle, turtle raptors from space. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, the, the, the biggest worry isn't so much how it's going to affect the topicality of the turtle raptors from space, yeah. but more sort of uh, like how can I possibly focus, you know, to get into the headspace of turtle raptors from space. And... Um, you know, it, it, and, and there's a lot of stress eating involved in between. Like, I'll write a scene, and then I'll eat a cheese stick. Then I'll write a line, and I'll eat another cheese stick. You know, so there's a lot of that. So it's, it, more than anything else, the sort of torrent of news and information is, is, is more about the, the stuff you do to mitigate your stress in between trying to be productive. Yeah. 
Well, how about the rest of you? I mean, what's what's the the, the mood like in the, the writers' rooms these days? Is it tough to focus? Uh, do, does every conversation eventually devolve into politics, or are you able to sort of put it aside? We, I in my room, I have a no computer, no cell phone rule. So there's a complete kind of blackout from news, and the second we take a break, everyone runs to the office, grabs their cell phone, and then usually one person comes in and fills us in and everything. <laughs> so we then spend the next hour instead of the ten minute break, spends an hour break as we're all just talking about how horrendous everything is and how depressing it is, and then we try to go back to being funny. So yeah. it's, a, it's a tricky balance. Yeah. Yeah, we had, um, we just came off a long run. Our writer's room wrapped, like, basically 1st of December, and then everybody was off for six months, and I was off for about two months prior to that. So I got so smart in those two months, you know? I was, like, reading Twitter all day long and reading the news and reading... The Wall Street Journal and and uh, listening to Pod Save America and uh, yes, thank you um, and and got so smart that I don't want to give up. I don't want to. I don't want to not be smart like that. Um, but it is hard because now I have a job again and going to work and trying to be focused in that eight-hour stretch. You miss six news cycles. It's not just like oh, what I missed today. You miss, no, you miss like nine things that happened at, like in the forty-five-minute intervals over the course of the day. So it is. We do, however, have TVs in our lobby in my office. So every time you go pee, you you get the news. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> uh, again, back to the leakers. I don't know what's yeah. going on. Um, well, what? Uh, what was uh, it like in the writers' room right after the election? Like the, the day after the election? What was the mood? Did you get anything done? What was sort of the, the general feeling of what was going on? It was, uh, I was not personally there. I was actually, um, I fled. I was in New York City shooting, and the show I was on got shut down, so I went home to Atlanta. Um, but from what I've been told, it was just absolute sorrow, horror, depression. And on Vampire Diaries specifically, they were shooting. Um, you know, we we work in Atlanta, so it's not you know it's not all rah rah elitist libtards, right? <laughs> you know, um, but they were shooting um, a really difficult scene where um, a woman is you know in a violent situation, uh, and our, our actress of color, and the set we were on was a former plantation, and you know we have a lot of a lot of people of color on our crew just being like, this is fucked today. Like we just don't want to be here, and um, it was yeah. not good for anybody. Well, Bo, you've been active. You've you've been uh, you know uh, sort of active in in sort of some community building and and uh, talk about balancing uh, you know writing and and your Hollywood work with uh, some of your political work. Uh, so I I was not in a writers' room on the day of the election. I was actually in Miami. Um, the next day, I was supposed to start participating in this this summit of of people from leaders from different industries and um, fields that meet once a year to you know, talk about a lot of interesting things. And <clears throat> I was knocking on doors in Little Havana on the day of the election. And, uh, you know, we all... I, I, I come from Missouri, so um, I, I I sort of felt that it was going to be a lot closer than a lot of my friends in New York or L.A. thought it was going to be. I still thought Hillary was going to win, but I, I was like, this is going to be a real squeaker because, um, I mean, I, I grew up in the part of the country that elected this guy, and um, and you, you could feel it in that part of the country when I went home for the holidays. Um, I uh, I was still shocked. I mean, when when uh, those returns started coming in, and it, it started to dawn upon everyone uh, what would happen. And and uh, I called the organizers of the summit, and I said, I've got to 
get home. I've got to leave. I've got to bail on, on this summit, and I've got to get back to New York and start thinking about what I can do right away. Uh, I had no idea what that was going to be, but I knew that um, this was catastrophic, and, and not, there was not a moment to waste. There was one year, 364 days until the midterms. Um, and I had a little political experience uh, from my youth and, and um, a number of contacts still in that world, and it was clear that I, it was time to dive back in in ways that I hadn't been active in, in the years previous, aside from helping to raise money and do stuff like that. Um, and uh, actually what the organizers at the summit said is, like, is there anything you can do here? And, and I, I thought, well, there's a lot of smart, successful people at this summit um, who normally wouldn't be in the same room together uh, for, so if if I could start organizing action sessions right away with these people, starting to stumble forward in um, concrete actions that we could start taking together, that might be a useful um, exercise. And, and we started to do that, and, and it was incredibly productive. And from that, um, I started to call my friends in different cities around the country, including Caitlin and Emily from ATX, uh, founders of ATX, and and said, let's start doing these action sessions in different uh, cities around around the nation, and um, and started doing them in New York and in LA, then Austin and Santa Fe and Charlotte, North Carolina, Oxford, Mississippi, um, Nashville, Tennessee, Cheyenne, Wyoming, so on and so forth, uh, and it was incredible the the sort of wave of enthusiasm to try to correct this wrong, um, <clears throat> and uh, and so. What I found was that for the first couple months after the election, it was really hard to focus on anything else. Uh, it, it, it felt as though, you know, the whole country had been sort of slapped across, across the face with the two by four, and you're sort of reeling from it, and then saying, "Okay, I got to get up, dust off, and what can we do to fight back?" Um, and it's it's become a negotiation, really, to to sort of balance one's time uh, between. You know what you're able to do as an artist creatively in terms of holding a mirror up to society and reflecting, but that that's a process that's not immediate. It takes time, and what you can do in any given moment, day, hour, second, um, which is you know sort of the heart of political activism, which is reacting um, in the now and being proactive about tomorrow. Uh, and uh, I, I think that it's just that's a new reality for for people that want to be involved. And um, you know it's. It's been an interesting balance to strike and involved a lot less sleep and a lot more coffee, but the resistance is strong. We're seeing that um, every day, and, uh, and I, I maintain hope. Liz, follow that up. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, that's how, not possible. <laughs> but how, how is it impacting you? Well, I mean, back to the question you were asking before, you know, I show run casual, and when we came in the day after, I mean, we didn't know whether to cancel the room. We didn't know whether to keep working. I mean, we all just kind of stumbled into work. Everybody's eyes were bloodshot. Nobody could believe it. I mean, we had definitely left the day before. There was like a varying degree of nerves. I I felt pretty nervous all day, but um, but was also had kind of told myself, um, I'm just going to be excited today because today history is going to be made and I bring my son and we're going to all go vote and, um, you know, it's going to be memorable. And then obviously what happened happened and we all just kind of, you know, sat around 
looking at each other, wondering what to do. And then, you know, text started coming in from Tara, who plays Laura on the show, and she's like, I want to be anti-Trump. I want my character to be anti-Trump. And then Michaela, what are we going to do? What are you doing in there? You know, and it was, and it was this, um, you know, we all kind of had this call to action of, it, w- it was actually right at a point where we were kind of, our season was a little different this year where we kind of, the first two episodes are their own little story and then the third episode is really what launches the season. So we were at this point of, of still being able to kind of decide our, our season arcs and it, it definitely impacted um, our youngest characters, uh, Laura's story, the teenager on the show. Um, it kind of, it, you know, we decided with her we were going to kind of go a more political route. Again, as a backdrop, I mean, Casual's not, it's not a political show in any means. It, it, it's a show that I think has a lot of social commentary. Um, and certainly these characters don't shy away from their opinions, and you can kind of um, imagine what they are. But um, with Laura, we really were able to kind of create this different backdrop for her story that I don't think would have occurred to us to do had, had that not happened. Well, I definitely want to talk more about that with everyone, but first, Paul, I want to give you a chance to, to talk sure. about how, how you're sort of balancing the new world order with, with your day job. Sure. So for us, um, I had a, a weird duality experience where I was in the midst of two shows. So um, we have Queen Sugar, which was 10 weeks into a writer's room, uh, into a 20-week writer's room. Uh, and in that show where it's very modern-day, rural South, um, I think it, it caused us to kind of reframe what the show was just from a different lens, from the different political landscape. Um, but at the exact same time, with the writer room closed, we were six episodes in the shooting underground, which is about the rural South, but in the middle of slavery. Um, and that one was, you know, we, it was odd because we were, you know, filming the night of the election. Um, and we were shooting out of order because our, our, our lead actress was eight months pregnant when we were shooting. So we had to stack the season with her work up front. Um, and we were saving an episode at the very end. And the, the show creator, Misha Green, was writing that episode as, as we were shooting. Uh, and it was a 40-minute monologue of Harriet Tubman. And it was called Minty. And it was just literally Harriet Tubman telling her story. And I really think that the, the election influenced Misha's tone in that um, monologue and it ended like the, with this amazing call to action, you know, to almost direct it to the audience, like, are you a citizen or are you a soldier? Um, and, you know, so for me it was really odd because I was looking through it from the lens of, you know, kind of the ancestors and, and how it affected our modern day characters. Well, yeah, and that's something I've heard a lot from showrunners in the past couple of months because everyone was in the middle of their seasons this past year, and, and a lot of shows had to sort of quickly readjust. They had, they had sort of written some storylines, even storylines that weren't political, but with this, this thought that, oh, next year there's going to be a female president, and so we should make references like this, and, and suddenly everyone was quickly having to, to, to redo things. Uh, how much did that impact all of you, and, and what kind of uh, re- reworking of the, of the pieces you were working on did you you have to make uh, in light of the election. Well, let me let me just say this. I mean, one of my EPs on on Queen Sugar thought maybe she'd run for president, which was Oprah. So it definitely <laughs> affected her. Yeah. And by the way, can can you urge her to do so? Absolutely. <laughs> I wish someone from Homeland was here because the season of Homeland. Oh my god! Spot on. So yeah. So spot on and amazing, and you couldn't believe what you were watching. And I would love to like 
dissect that with Alex Gonza and hear him talk about it for like two days straight. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and one thing was obviously the, the, the relationship between the president-elect and the intelligence community. Oh and, God. you know, clearly they, they had to sort of adjust it and uh, it, it was pretty amazing. But um, for, for, for all of you, you know, speaking of which, uh, you know, things, things are happening so fast now and we're kind of through the looking glass uh, you know, truth, the question of truth is up in the air. That, that sort of messes with stories. Like, nothing is unbelievable anymore. So, so how do you write unbelievable storylines when real headlines are, are beating you to the punch and oftentimes are more, like, outlandish than anything that you could ever create in the writer's room? Well, the, the basics haven't changed is the thing. You know, when you're, look, I'm writing the Dark Crystal uh, prequel, but nevertheless, we're dealing with universal themes. Uh, you know, the, 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 the weirdest thing in our show is that our show was originally called, originally called Age of Rebellion, and it turns out that George Lucas owns everything that says Rebellion on it. So, um, so, so we had to change the name to something, so eventually it came up Age of Resistance, and that's the, the, the title of our show, which we thought we were going to get groans from a lot of people because it seems like we're sort of appropriating a term that's very topical and, and instead it's, it seems to have been greeted really well. But I think that, that you know, the, the basics of what we've been writing about the entire time, um, which is about standing up to power, standing up to overwhelming authority, not accepting hagiographical hey, narratives of why authority deserves its authority, all of those things are baked into the DNA of a lot of what we write anyway. And especially if you're, if you're a guy like me who's been doing mostly fantasy, science fiction, and horror type stuff, writing about current events in metaphor is not unknown territory. This is what I've been doing my entire career. Um, so, so really, uh, some of the things get sharper, but you still focus on the basics of what drama is. And for me, especially writing in this genre so much, much of what I write about is about the relationship of people to power. So that part of it really stays consistent. I think, <clears throat> circling back to the question about how does it impact kind of what we do and how, and how we tell the stories, it's that for me personally, it, it has recontextualized the way I look at, at certain things. You know, I've spent the last eight years in uh, the vampire genre, which is you know, from the beginning, the advent of the genre itself has been very steeped in deep gothic roots, very, um, you know, almost, it's a, it's a very predatory, seductive, sensual uh, character, the vampire. Uh, there, is a, there is a rape culture uh, thread that weaves through it. And, um, and it's kind of in that, like, bodice-rippy way of all the romance novels that I grew up reading. It's always been really sexy and interesting to me. And... It, you know, sort of starting with that, that debate where, where Donald Trump was just circling Hillary and interrupting her and the puppet, you know, no, you're the puppet, and, and, and bullying her and coming at her and, and being so predatory. It, it made me so sick that all of a sudden I was like, okay, now I get it, you know? I can read studies about uh, feminism in, in storytelling. I can read studies about, you know, any... I can read people's reactions like the, the barrier gaze argument of last year, you know. Um, I, can, I can understand why people are upset about that, but I can also, as a storyteller, say, hey, wait a second, like, somebody just said this in my room the other day, we're equal opportunity killers. And I said, not anymore, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and it really has, it, now I get it. I mean, I'm coming, obviously, from a sort of almost uh, unfortunate place of privilege that I am just now saying that, you know, like, oh, Donald Trump got elected, and now I, you know, I woke up. But, um, 
But I did, and I'm happy to admit that. And now uh, I was talking to the writer who wrote an epi- the episode that was being delivered the day after the election, her script. And in the episode, a female character got beaten up by a man. Now, granted, it was in a memory, and it was an alternate universe, and it was, you know, in flashback period garb, and, and it was his own demons, but he beat her up. And we all decided on that day that those two can't be together anymore. And we killed a love story on that day um, that probably most people who watch the show are actually still rooting for. And that's a really weird feeling to know that, like, narratively, this, it's, you've been going down this path, but now as a, and it, your, your conscience can't advocate that kind of violence and, and continue to lean into it, you know? And she even said last night, she's like, I think I ruined the show. And I'm like, you didn't ruin the show. We'll be fine, you know? But, um, but yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff is what's happening in our rooms and in our, in our creative minds. Um, <clears throat> the new show that I'm working on, I, I started conceiving of and working on over two years ago in a very different uh, political climate. And uh, it takes place in the near future, about 15, 20 years in the future. So it's interesting as one is working on story and developing story, you have to speculate and imagine what the world will look like 15, 20 years from now. Um, Does it still exist? Well, that, you know, (laughs) prior to November 8th, 2016, what that world looked like maybe was a lot different, you know? Uh, and, And to put that in perspective, let's just use somewhere in the middle, 17 years ago. 17 years ago, 9 11 hadn't happened yet. We were at the very beginning of George W. Bush's presidency. No one knew who Barack Obama was. And Donald Trump was the joke he's always been up until a very short time ago. So that gives you a sense of how much the world can change in 17 years. You also didn't have iPhones, you know, um, and Twitter didn't exist, right? That's just 17. <laughs> that's just 17 years. In fact, Facebook didn't exist. That's like saying oxygen didn't exist. (laughs) That's 17 years from now, right? Um, Right. So so when when you think of like, you know, okay, it's 17 years, the world won't, you know, we're fundamentally the same human beings we've been for millennia. Um, The same universal stories apply. Uh, And yet how quickly our world is moving and how much can change. And when you have these sort of um, traumatic events, I mean, whether you support... Trump or not, and I, I take it that most of you probably do not, although there might be a few of you in this room, um, uh, it's still a traumatic event for the country, one way or the other, <clears throat> in terms of the schism, the divisiveness, and um, the polarization. And we will be contending with, with those uh, consequences, those ripple effects, for decades to come. And I, it's interesting, as storytellers, you, you sort of say to yourself, well, I mean, for, let me back up for a second. I believe all stories are political. Every single story is political, whether it's about politics or not. I'll use uh, a random example. Uh, My Fair Lady. Who, any, any musical fans in here? Yeah. Okay. My Fair Lady is incredibly political. It has to do with gender, with class, with identity politics, um, and, and, you know, traced all the way back to Pygmalion, a story of reinvention and how do you sort of define your place in society by the public image that you present to the world. Incredibly political. So 
Um, but oftentimes, if you're working on something that isn't overtly political, you aren't necessarily thinking about it in that context, even if your political beliefs and worldview are seeping into every word you write. And I think now, my general sense among the writers I know is that we're hyper-aware, that even if you're not doing a political show, you're recognizing, no matter what genre, no matter what character, that there are political implications to every narrative choice you make. And, and, it, and it feels like if the day-to-day culture is saying it's okay to not be inclusive, it's okay to not be tolerant, it's okay to be bigoted, then your responsibility as a storyteller feels like if you disagree with that, you have to double down on making it okay in your storytelling to be inclusive and to be tolerant and to, you know, making it not okay to be a bigot. And that, it's like the, the weight of that is always hanging in a good way. Yeah, that's right. What are your blind spots? You know, and, and really quickly, another thing I've noticed that's like is overtly political in the way that um, writers exist in the world um, uh, is we have a union called the Writers Guild of America. Um, I serve on the Council for the East, and you guys might be aware that there was uh, negotiations for our contract with the AMPTP, which are the producers' organization um, that are, it's basically like management on the other side of the table. And I was on the negotiating committee for that, and in a lot of our meetings leading up, the, the, the Joint Council East and West meetings and the negotiating committee meetings, um, it was very much in the context of a Trump America, this sense that, um, you know, as organized labor, which is what we are, um, that, that, you know, there was a political moment here that the only way things happen politically is when you stand up for yourself, um, that there is not a time in our nation's history to sort of uh, sit down, be quiet, and hope for the best, that nothing happens unless you make it happen. And that, you know, those sort of conversations happening within the union are not ones that have been happening to that level or degree in years past. So I think that, you know, I, I only bring that up as an example because there's a charged sort of um, politi- pol- you know, political consciousness that's happening among the screenwriters and television writers of this country, which I think you're going to see percolating into almost everything you watch. There's definitely a direct correlation between the quality of the deal that we got from management uh, and the election of Donald Trump, because I feel like, as you said, he went to those meetings and it was like, this was a thing that we as writers could make happen immediately. And a lot of that displaced anger, I think, led to us being able to, say, authorize a strike vote by 96%. I think people were generally looking at somebody to stick it to who had been sticking it to us, you know. And, and I, I do believe that, that the militancy that the, guild, that the Guild showed in this negotiation is directly influenced in a huge way by that. And hopefully that'll also wind up on TV screens at some point. Um, one thing I want to ask you guys, uh, you know, Hollywood is also, the, of course, a whipping boy, and it's become even more of a whipping boy among the political, uh, you know, on, on the right side. And ironically, Trump was was sort of built by Hollywood. You know, he would never be president if he was not the host. Of the and they won't let us forget it. <laughs> Steve Bannon made his millions of dollars because he owns a chunk of Seinfeld. So these guys were created by Hollywood, but yet they love to bash Hollywood every chance they get uh, as sort of out of touch, as in, in you know, its own little bubble. What do you make of that, and, and how much of it is true? How much are we in a bubble, and, and how is that sort of maybe hurting the cause, hurting the resistance at the same time? I would just say that 
I, you know, there's so much hypocrisy going on, and what you just talked about is a, a central part of it. And I think that it really, for the room I'm in right now, it really helps us in terms of good guys and bad guys, in terms of gray area, in terms of what people get away with. Um, you know, one of the things about this election that, that creatively was interesting was, you know, sometimes you feel like there are no more surprises left, and the world is so... Is it such a place that, that nothing can take you off guard? And this election happens, and everyone's like, whoa. And you have to reevaluate everything. And I think that there is a reset that happens both as people and also as a creative person in terms of how you shift the tectonic plates of what you thought was good, what you thought was bad, how you get away with things. And so in the show I'm doing now, we have the first uh, gay lead character on, I think, any network hour long, um, certainly this network, which is CBS. And in the testing for the pilot, um, he's a gay married man to another man. Um, and in testing the pilot, the second his husband came on screen, the dials plummeted. They just, no one wanted it. And this was like a 15 second. The second the husband left, they shot back up. And this happened the two times the husband was in the scene. And, and you know, it, it was this moment of, like with Trump winning, like with the inherent racism against Obama and sexism against Hillary, where you start to think, okay, we've made a ton of progress in this country and, and we're so much farther along than we may be, but there's still so much latent hatred. There's still so much latent misogyny and racism and, and, and it kind of forces you to figure out the balance of how you want to tell these stories. And I think the hypocrisy that's going on now, um, you know, in terms of these people who are bashing the very business that made them, um, helps us frame good versus evil. And that, you know, how you position it and how you find a context to, to tell those stories. We live in such hypocrisy times, right? I mean, when you, you, you can dig up any old Donald and Trump And the lack tweet. of facts, a lack yeah. of truth. The fa you know, the fact that you can just, it's chaos in a way in that the leader of what we call the free world is just blatantly lying and making stuff up and refuting the truth. And it forces all of us to reevaluate what, the meaning of truth is, and to try to stay strong to it. Well, let's do a little experiment. Where are you guys from? Where are you from? Chicago. Chicago. Texas and Connecticut. Texas and Connecticut. Where are you from? The Midwest, Chicago. Right on. To, to New York Chicago. City. New York. San Juan, Puerto Rico. All right, Puerto Rico. And I'm from Missouri, right? Um, <clears throat> it's not a collection of, like, coastal elites here, you know? Um, <laughs> I'm from I'm from Missouri. My dad spent 30 years in the Navy. My my grandfather was a coal miner. My mom never went to college. Started working when she was 17. I've worked in factories. I've worked as a barista. I've detailed cars. I imagine pretty much everyone here has done um, a job for minimum wage or close to it at some point in their lives. The people that we are privileged enough to employ are unionized labor that work 12-hour days or more. Um, you know, working their their butts off in order to make an actual product, a thing that, you know, we actually sell to other people that they choose to buy, like we're making something. Um, and, uh, and, and I would say, you know, you look at the sort of work that the folks in Hollywood do that, that you know, is not... You know, it's not glitzy and glamorous. It's getting up at six in the morning and 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 busting your ass day after day um, with a lot of hardworking people who aren't necessarily earning a ton of money. You know, in the average writer room, these are squarely middle class people um, that are working in this writer this writers room. Uh, 
you know, I think there's a misperception about when you look at red carpets or the sort of glossy tabloid rags of what Hollywood is. Um, but I think you'll even find that a lot of the big movie stars that you admire started out at some point um, struggling, just like many of us have. Um, I was I was talking to an actor yesterday who's become extremely successful, and you know, she was talking about waiting tables like many of us have had to do um, when we were first starting out. Uh, in terms of being out of touch, I mean, you're only as out of touch as you choose to be. And we have a president who's never known what it means to have a real job or to struggle, you know, to earn anything, um, you know, who inherited more money than any of us will ever earn in our lives. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, when you, when you think about um, what, what sort of bubbles people live in. Who doesn't read. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Proudly you know, does I, not read. I, yeah, I think that you know the the um, yeah the the hypocrisy level there is pretty extreme. Um, certainly, all the people sitting up here don't have a lot of sympathy for Donald Trump. Uh, I think some stereotypes are true that Hollywood does toward the lean to the left. Um, but ask yourself why why artists tend to be more liberal than not. Uh, you know, I, I think it's because um, these tend to be people that have read a lot whether they went to school or not, that empathize with other people, that are curious about the world, um, and that ultimately, when you write, you're doing so out of some sort of moral compass of this is the way the world is, and let me imagine what the world could be, for better or for worse. Um, that's what being in touch is all about. Uh, and the people that first stood up around the campfire a couple million years ago when language was just being formed, were trying to communicate to their other cave people about what they saw on the other side of the horizon, about what was possible, about what was scary, about what we needed to know about ourselves in order to survive. It's a necessary and noble craft to tell stories. Um, it's what allows us to understand ourselves. Uh, and so talk about the bubbleness, talk about you know, the, the, the glitziness and the glamour and all that stuff. It's not why any of these people who are successful, who really stick to it, started. They started because they have a desperate need to communicate with other human beings. Um, and the only way that our president attempts to do that is at 140 characters or less um, between the hours of 6 and 9 a.m. in Mar-a-Lago. Let me tell you something about... About, about being an out-of-touch coastal elite, and, and, and apropos of your asking where we came from. So, you know, I grew up in Puerto Rico, um, which has systematically, over the course of the last century, been turned by the United States into a tax-free haven for industry um, and into a, into a paradise for free market capitalism through uh, a number of things, and a country that, where the citizens, you know, only have a limited say in the direction politically of the nation because of being essentially a de facto colony of the United States. And it's interesting for me watching what's going on right now, which is a great deal of showmanship, which is really concealing uh, the, the robbery of a lot of our economic uh, safeguards uh, in the name of tax breaks for the rich and in the names of tax breaks for industry. So whenever they say, you know, whenever I hear about the coastal elites being out of touch, I look at where I came from and I look at what happened to my country uh, because of the political will of this country. And I say to myself, you have no frickin' idea how in touch <laughs> and how much I know the future that you have elected for yourselves. 
And it is, it is often crazy-making for me to look at the amount of sort of distraction that happens um, because of the political circus that's going on that's actually taking our minds off the truth, which is that basically every economic safety net that's been put in place for us is about to be taken from us by robber barons. Um, and frankly, you know, anybody who tells me that I'm out of touch, I just suggest that they take a quick trip to where I grew up and I say, look at your future, you know, and, uh, and, and then come and tell me that I'm out of touch. I also suggest that they read The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which is a book about how the forces of free market capitalism use political and, uh, and uh, natural disasters in order to reframe the economic parameters of a nation and look at your country and see what's being done here because it is exactly that. Well, let's, I want to get back to storytelling real quick. Uh, one of the interesting things that happened after the election is you had a couple of network executives, uh, Channing Dundry, the head of ABC, for example, say, hey, you know what? Maybe we have missed telling some stories. Maybe we've missed telling some middle America stories. We've been focused lately on these, these big, glamorous soap operas, et cetera. We're going to focus a little bit more on middle America, on, on sort of the people who you know, maybe voted for Trump because they felt like the elites, the coastal elites, weren't paying attention to them. Do you think there's some truth to that? Do you think Hollywood uh, is sort of adjusting at all? And, and how do you walk that line? Because... That's also code for maybe we're going to tell less stories about, you know, sort of the, the uh, you know, under-examined uh, or the underprivileged. Uh, you know, it, it, it does seem like we're walking a fine line here in Hollywood and the, the kinds of stories that we tell. I, I, I just, I read that and I was like, oh, you know, like, yes, of course, we should always be telling stories about everybody. You know, so it's like, don't just be like, hey, gee, we forgot to tell stories about half the country. Like, we're, I think every storyteller is always attempting to do that. Yeah. The market, you know, sort of the buyer's market shifts and sighs and creaks and groans. And then everybody's got a, you know, honor duty soldier show on coming on next year now as a result of this. And literally, I have a friend who just wrote, who just wrote a spec that's, kind of rooted in that and I was like hey way to be topical you know and first thing out of the mouth of the studio was you know you say the word military now because everyone's got their military show and everyone's rolling their eyes like they're done with military and I'm like well here's here, here's the problem you know <laughs> here's the problem yeah. don't just prescribe a statistic of what you need to make sure you hit just make sure that you're like rolling with character yeah more than you're rolling with concept yeah that's where the Hollywood cynicism kind of comes yeah. in a little bit I think it's almost, um, I don't know, I, you know, I think about it in terms of like um, kind of my own development moving forward and, and yeah, how you do address that. For me, I think so much of what I've been attracted to lately is, is telling stories, especially in the development I'm working on about like women who are refusing to kind of play the game and put themselves in a box. And I, I almost think we can reach those places by, um, this is a sidebar, but did anyone watch Survivor this season? <laughs> the best show ever that I still watch that nobody watches except probably everyone in middle America. But something happened on Survivor this season. I'm not spoiling it because it already happened. But um, 
where, for anyone who watched it, there was a character, so, sorry. Quick they're, th- they're people. They're actual people. They're actual people, <laughs> yeah. But there was a character, Zeke, who had been, it was like, a, it was like one of those epi- seasons where they bring back people from previous seasons, and so Zeke had been on the season before, he was beloved. Anyway, what ended up happening at Tribal Council was, he was outed by a guy named Varner, who was also beloved, and it was very surprising that Varner did this. I was caught off guard. But, um, <laughs> but, Varner, all of a sudden, and it's, you know, you go crazy on survivor and you forget and you like start and, and you know you're always like you can push boundaries and you can lie to people and that's fine and it was very interesting because this really drew a line of what you could and couldn't do but anyway Varner said at tribal council Zeke's not being honest with you because Zeke's keeping a secret and I don't know if you know it but Zeke why haven't you told anyone that you're a transgender and everybody freaked out but not in the way you would think where you might think that people would look at Zeke and be like what Everybody looked, including Jeff Probst, looked at this guy Varner and they were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) People burst into tears. Everybody was like, you do not do that to somebody. That is wrong. And honestly, like, I sobbed my face off watching it. My wife and I sobbed our faces off. Um, And it was so incredibly moving. And I was like, that will do more. That will do more. Taking this character that is probably beloved by all these people in all those red states who never knew this about him. And nobody could look at that guy and say, that is not a man. That will do more for bathrooms in North Carolina than probably Caitlyn Jenner, Transparent, which are doing a ton. But, but it, speaks, it speaks in a language that people understand and I guess what I'm saying is people, I mean, I watch the show too, but like I do feel like Survivor probably has a pretty um, universal, it, it's not a coastal elite show, put it right, that way. Right. Um, so, like um, Queer Eye, like, like Queer Eye for the Straight yeah, Guy. Absolutely. Was like so, um, you know, <laughs> the issue you bring up, just really quick, because yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear about how Underground came to be. Um, and the reason I'm asking is because when I was in grad school around 2001 or two, we had an assignment where we had to come up with a pilot, an idea for a show. And, um, and one of the ones that I came up with was uh, uh, my, my family in South Carolina way back when had plantations on my dad's side, owned slaves. And um, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to know that this is in your family history. And I I came up with an idea of um, wanting to tell a story of a plantation during the Civil War, but entirely from the perspective of the slaves. And my teachers were all saying to me, no network will ever touch this in a million years. Great idea, but put it in a drawer. I think it's extraordinary that in a very short amount of time, we now have stories that are finally reaching television screen that in decades past never had a chance. And so when there's this like whiplash of, now we gotta tell middle America stories you know, about white working class people, and you're like, hold on. There's a whole shit ton of stories that we've like right. barely begun to yeah. tell. So anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, because you know, when I hear that, I mean, I'm working on you know, a show about the Underground Railroad, and I'm working on a show about you know, female, black, rural Louisiana farmers. Um, which is, you know, clearly it, there's so many farmers down there that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and, and Underground shot in, in New Orleans, and so does Queen Sugar, and I shot on the, on the same plantations for both shows. Um, you know, and, and it, it's just so odd to um, be in a space where um, you're almost being asked to justify the lens at which you're trying to show a story. Um, and so, you know, just to answer your question, I mean, Underground just came about, I think, because of a, a 
kind of critical mass of cable television, this, this new kind of magic medium where all of a sudden you had tons of networks that were looking for an identity um, that used to live on syndication. Uh, and now syndication wasn't how you were going to make your mark, and people were looking for new shows to, you know, trumpet as our original, our thing. And WGN um, was that network. They were, you know, kind of like the uh, modern-day superstation in Atlanta, um, which was a terrestrial station in Chicago that now all of a sudden became a cable station and needed uh, signature programming. And, and Underground just spoke to something that was unique at the time, um, and it's just very ironic that it's underground is in flux right now because uh, a particular media group, Sinclair Media Group, purchased WGN. Uh, and Sinclair is a very conservative uh, group. Uh, and, you know, and so now there's really no place for this show about the Underground Railroad. And ironically, in, in you know, our kind of post-conversations, the post-mortem of, of where it is now, it's like, you know, we have a show that one of the lead characters last season was Harriet Tubman. Um, which you, I couldn't have imagined. I mean, you talk about 17 years. I couldn't imagine five years ago that there would be a show where Harriet Tubman is the star, like, superhero, you know, going out with guns and an axe, freeing slaves. Like, you just wouldn't have imagined that that could happen. Um, and then as quickly as it happened, you know, all of a sudden there's a shift and now there's no place for it. Um, and, you know, you know, as everyone here knows, TV is such an odd business and the margins for success and failure are so narrow um, that it's, you know, kind of like successful shows are successful, not just because of all the great creatives involved, but because they hit the marketplace at the right time and reach the right audience. Um, and, um, you know, I, I kind of look at, you know, our mission, um, you know, Though I didn't, I never kind of took it as, "Hey, we need to tell different stories." And maybe it's because I'm an African American male, and I feel like there haven't been an adequate amount of stories being told. Um, and even with Queen Sugar, where uh, before you know any of this stuff happened, Ava Duvernay, who created the show, uh, committed just kind of out of the blue um, that she wanted to have all female directors. She didn't want any male directors on the show, um, and because she just felt like you know I have three lead female characters on my show and I want them to make sure that that voice is heard. Um, and then after the election, you know, it felt like, oh, wow, that was <laughs> clearly the right decision. Not that regardless in the Obama America or the Trump America, you know, women directors were, you know, there weren't enough of them happening. They weren't getting opportunities. Um, the, the ironic thing is, and I think that, you know, what we all should be doing is just moving forward, no, doing what we know we're supposed to do, um, every last one of the women that we hired last season, we couldn't hire again this season because they're all working. Uh, and before last season, they couldn't get a job. Um, yeah, I tried to hire. I had your list. I had your list. I'm like, look at this great list of women that have worked in Atlanta. Like, get them. there. they're like, they're unavailable forever. Like, yeah. you'll never see them again. You know, so just that one little action changed the perspective of Hollywood. And, and, and it's ironic that, you know, Hollywood is considered this kind of beacon um, where I think all of us feel like we're fighting every day to make it that. Um, it's not that by nature. It's a business by nature. Um, well, that, that's the, the, the irony of, of, of course, we went through Oscars So White and, and television was starting to make some real strides and continues to make real strides. And then I think the fear was after the election, there was going to be this, this knee-jerk reaction like that comment of, uh-oh, we got to go back to doing middle America stuff now. And maybe 
Hollywood might erase some of the strides that they, they had made. So, so really, it's about being vigilant and making sure that we don't go backwards. Well, it's funny, because, you know, in defense of Channing, who, who under her watch, you have Kerry Washington and Viola Davis right. and, and really strong, phenomenal, powerful women, and more so even women of color, the helms of broadcast series, which is so great, all at the same time. And so she's, she's done all these amazing things. So I think maybe her comment is even coming from, like, Oh, like my focus has to broaden as well. My priorities have to broaden as well. I, so I didn't mean to diss her oh, yeah, the comment. No, just so yeah. much as like it's just that sense of like, okay, you know. Uh, but kind of going back to what you were saying, the uh, queer eye for the straight guy beget Modern Family, begat one could argue yeah. transparent. And don't forget you know? Will and Grace. Oh yeah, Will and Grace. Duh. Hello. But like I, I had a friend who was saying, you know, you do realize that Modern Family probably did more. To you know, progressing people's that what how people look at gay relationships and gay marriage specifically yeah. and gay parenting, um, than you know than than anything else that has happened in the last fifteen twenty years and and that is ultimately where our responsibility sits. Like when when we all collectively are schooled by a, by fan culture uh, and the LGP, LGBT community saying, hey, we have noticed a trend and a pattern in the way that you treat characters that are representative of us, could you knock it off? We have a responsibility to, to knock it off and to understand things. And so when you're in a culture that is, and I, you know, sort of repeating myself, but that is, where you feel like you're in, a, in an ideological war with a culture of the types of people who think it is okay to be cruel, to be bullies, to be... Um, bigoted, etc. Like I just feel like we, what we can do as writers is, is really like really make sure that we're showing everybody, and we're we're like leaning into love in the way that we can. I mean, I know that's kind of kumbaya, but to show that, to show what they were showing on Sensate before it got canceled, <laughs> to you know, <laughs> to to show people of all shapes, sizes, races, and and beliefs, and um, and celebrate it. Well, one more question, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Because, uh, Bo, I wanted to ask you a specific question about for the folks who are doing shows about Washington and government and D.C., um, how tough is their job now? If I'm writing about, say, <laughs> the FBI and the CIA, I mean, even what happened yesterday... I got with, out at just the right time. I, th- I think so. But, but when, when you see what happened yesterday with, with Comey on the stand, and, and you know, we're through, again, through the looking glass... How, how does one even write about politics in this day and age? Uh, look, I mean, there's, <clears throat> there's a whole lot of talented people that are writing about politics with, I think, great effectiveness and, and insight, um, whether it's coming from a comedic place or dramatic place or somewhere in between. Um, I mean, you write about politics the way writers have written about politics going back to the Greeks. You know, you, uh, I, I don't think we're living in a unique time. Uh, actually, when you look at like the vast spectrum of human history um, and you look at artists working in other countries where you can actually uh, get killed or imprisoned for what you write, you know the 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 um, great privilege that we have in America still you know TBD to see where we 'll be in, <laughs> yeah a few years from now um, to to be able to express ourselves uh, in a way 
where we don't suffer the same consequences that writers for centuries have been facing elsewhere. I mean, Shakespeare always had to worry about uh, the the queen or the king shutting down a theater if they just didn't like what they were seeing uh, at the Old Globe there. Um, so I, I think that you know it, it's a it's an impossibly broad question you're asking because you know, you're saying how do people write about politics and people are always writing about politics whether they're writing about politics or not if you're talking about how do people write about the specific world of Washington DC and all the players there you know and and in a medium where even though it moves faster than film does in a lot of ways you're still many months behind current events uh you know, look, that that's always a tricky thing, and people have found solutions to that, whether it's homeland adjusting or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or uh, the you know, different approaches that Veep took. And, um, and, and sometimes you miss the mark a little bit, but that's okay. You know, the, the goal is to do your best to react to, in a moment, something that is true. You know, and what is true now? Will that be true six months from now? Sometimes it is, and if it's not, at least then you're you you're able to have that sort of like historical irony to be able to um, you know compare what was six months ago to what is now, which is valuable in and of itself. You know, it's an imperfect science. You know, it, there's there's no. I wish there was an answer for that. If if I could write that book, I'd be you know extremely powerful and wealthy man. But um, it's. Uh, I think that everyone's doing a pretty fine job you know, of groping through the darkness. Well, talk about historical irony. Like, I, I feel like this panel can't end without talking about Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I was just you know? about to say like, that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I sit there and I watch it. I'm like, if Hillary was president, this would be a very intelligent and entertaining show. Yeah. Donald Trump is president and Terrifying. I want to vomit. It just keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. <laughs> It is so harrowing in the context of the reality that we live in. Uh, the speculative fiction feels so specifically presently of today um, in a way that it absolutely wouldn't have had Hillary been president, which is, by the way, sort of what everybody probably believed when they were putting that show together. Yeah. But, you know, you know my, my favorite meme going around the Internet right now is one that the heading goes... Oh, a foreign power colluded to install a right-wing government in your country... And then it says, the rest of Latin America. And then there's a picture of John Krasinski in the office going. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if you look at some of the greatest art of the 20th century, you know, you're talking about the playwrights, novelists, and, uh, you know, people who came out of, sadly, through great and horrible personal misfortune, things like the Soviet (laughs) Union, things like the military dictatorships in, in Latin America in the 1980s, Central America in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And... You know the 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 light degree to which you know w- you know we can catastrophize the the coming of Donald Trump to any number of ways because we are used to having a a way of life politically that is relatively easy compared to the rest of the world. But if what we're going through right now as a country can energize us as artists and you as consumers of art and perhaps even artists yourselves to create in a way that encourages people not just to resist politically but to openly stand up for the right to live the best life that you can possibly have on your own terms as your own person, um, there's a chance that, you know, the, all, for all of our catastrophizing, all of our depressive, self-loathing feeling that this is only all going to end in tears, there is a strong possibility that great art can come out of this and that politically we can be okay. But it requires the engagement of everybody who makes art and a real sort of commitment to making art that empowers people 
whether it's politically, whether it's personally, whether it's in terms of their gender or their sexuality or whatever, to be the most honest version of that. Because the only way that we survive is by being the most honest version of ourselves we can and telling the world to go fuck itself if they don't like it. <laughs> All I know is watching uh, the Comey testimony yesterday, if, if this was an actual TV show, he would have slapped a smoking gun on the desk and we'd be done with this already. Yeah. So... If only. Well, let's open it up to the audience. I'm sure you have some questions. Right here. Uh, we expected it, and we, meaning really me, I mean, I, one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this show was because uh, I had a deal with CBS. I love the people at CBS. Um, my, I'd done a show for them about nine years ago that was a, a, basically a musical comedy, romantic comedy. And, Best show. And they were... Love Monkey. They, yeah, yes, Love Monkey, yes. And they were... It was like amazing of them that they bought it, that they made the pilot, that they put it in the air, and they were so supportive of it, and then they canceled it for three episodes. So it was like not the network for me, and, um, and my feeling was I'll want to do a CBS procedural, but I want to do one that's different, that, that changes the game in some way. And so having a gay male lead who was CIA, um, and it felt like the opportunity to do that, but you know, it was a big gamble of you guys want to be more diverse. They took a lot of hell last year at the upfronts because of that. Uh, so it felt like they were going to buy it, but were they going to support it? And in this situation, you know, the, the warning them of this is not going to test well. Um, there was a whole adoption story with these two men who love each other very much. The whole point was to tell a story about two men who are married and have it be a domestic marriage story, not a gay marriage story. Um, but what it did was, for me, realize that um, the CBS audience is different from a premium cable audience. It's different from a streaming audience. That it doesn't, it doesn't change at all the stories you want to tell. What I think it did for us was realize we have to slow it down a little bit. That we can't do too much too soon. And that something, a story that could have been in the first two or three episodes, we may have to introduce more slowly so that it plays out over four or five or six episodes. Um, that being said, up to this point, the studio and the network have been nothing but supportive uh, about it. The president of the network at the time was Glenn Geller, who just left. He's an out gay man. The story was very personal to him. He was really excited about it. You know, the, the guys who have replaced him uh, have been very supportive so far, too. So I don't know how it's going to go, but we knew going into it. I, I don't think I expected the dials were going to plummet that much. And the men who were being in the Q&A afterwards at the focus group... They all said, oh, we have no problem with gay marriage. We have no, you know, no, one, no one stepped up to say, even though they all obviously didn't like it, except one guy said, I don't mind gay marriage. I just don't want it shoved in my face. Um, and it was, again, this, this recognition of both how far we've come and how far there is to go. And to have the opportunity to tell these stories like a modern family did, um, like Will and Grace did, except in an hour-long format, and to try to do it in a way that is truthful, but also that feels like it is going to be able to hopefully change some minds and to try to be patient with it. Thanks for your question. Over here. Uh, as someone that's part of a startup that 
determine how we have to come to market now. Has there been any instances that you can think of where a concept or a writer has brought something geared toward Trump or his administration where uh, they've had to be nixed or steered in a different direction or the pressure of bringing it to the audience has just I had sort of a, the reverse Handmaid's Tale experience where uh, I was producing a pilot last year that was about um, a homegrown coup. Uh, we're taking out a president like a Clinton or uh, an Obama and, and, and installing a new leader who ultimately felt very, in a fascist way, like somehow would define Trump. And so when we were developing it, in a Hillary future, it was really smart, riveting, excellent, you know, fun entertainment. Um, and when the election happened, suddenly it felt very sort of too close to home, uncomfortable, too political. And it went from, you know, in, in a span of two weeks, went from being the high priority project uh, at the network to not getting ordered at all. Um, so nobody said you know, oh, it's because Trump is president. But, it, I mean, they didn't say corporately, like, oh, no, you can't do that. We don't want to upset Trump. So it's not totally specific to your example. But it did sort of, it, the ripple effect of the context um, was instant. It was wild. You know, we're just getting to uh, uh, sort of a pitching stage again. We're already talking about next season, development, all that. Do you get a sense that because, you know, as a nation, we're, we're, we're sort of traumatized at the moment that we might be going in a more blue sky direction? Do you think people want a little more escapist fare right now? I think that Wonder Woman made $175 million at the box office in this first weekend. And you're going to get a lot of, uh, whether they're black, white, Asian, gay, straight, whatever, you're going to have a lot of women kicking ass. I think that's, you know, Hollywood is a business and we're not, you know, yes, absolutely. I think it's great that Wonder Woman is doing so well, but like the, the mercenary side of it is that like everybody's going to be chasing after the Wonder Woman money. That's, that's what happened yesterday and pitching season starts next month and they're looking at that. They're not looking at November. Yeah. And also, by the way, uh, a female filmmaker. Patty Jenkins, biggest, biggest open ever. So, so yeah, they didn't bother securing her for the sequel because, you know. <laughs> oh, Hollywood. Oh, man. Yes, back there. Yeah, yeah, we're not sure he can read, right? like naive naive tiny little bubble of Hollywood where all my bosses are really like compassionate progressive people um, and I just believe that to be true of people who who make stories which is probably not true I just haven't thank God had that little tiny bubble burst by my by the people I work for yet and I hope that I will not all my characters talk like neurotic self-loathing overeducated Puerto Ricans <laughs> If you don't want that, you just don't fucking hire me. You know? Write what you know. Any more questions? Right here. Um, 
both, I think. <laughs> both. I, I do both comedy and drama, and I think that it's it's just a you know it's it's just a a different approach, probably how you do it. But I don't think either is um, more or less powerful. You know, I think that. Um, like I said, with casual, I think we're making social commentary all the time and other stuff I'm working on now. The whole idea of it is to make social commentary and to, I was kind of saying before, like to look at how we view women and how we put them in boxes and to, I mean, even in pitching, like I don't think I've gone into a pitch since the election and not brought up Hillary Clinton and talked about how she was asked as a woman to drop her last name, transform, cut her hair, dye it blonde, start speaking with a southern accent, oh, walk like that, oh, don't walk like that, oh, talk like that, but not like that, oh, you have to do this, and, you know, now wear this. And just the idea that then, it, you know, I think back to, like, 2008, and even I look at myself, who was like, I don't know, I just don't know if she's authentic, I'm just not sure. She's like, of course you don't know who she is. She barely knows who she is. She's been told by so many people to be somebody else. So I think now going into pitches and... Um, kind of owning that and saying, you know, in comedy or drama, like, I want to pitch female characters who are saying, fuck that, I'm not putting myself in a box, you know, I'm, I'm going to be who I am, and I'm going to make that be enough. And so I think, you know, like Bo was saying, whether it's Veep, whether it's House of Cards, whether it's Homeland, it, it's all being done in, in different, um, different kind of formats, mediums, but it's, but it's, equally effective you know i find it to be at least you know sort of jumping off that the the hot potato question is is the line of course the kathy griffin question and is there is there a line what what did you make of that and also the reaction the piling on that happened afterwards i'll dive in do you (laughs) go for it julie Uh, Look, I think I think just in comedy in general, there's a line between something that's actually funny and something that's not funny, and um, and and I'm not going to objectively prescribe what I thought that moment was. I just think that, unfortunately for for Kathy Griffin, she stepped into something um, that gave ammunition to the other side. We happen to be on this side; they are the others, and they got to have a field day with it, and they got to call us all hypocrites and tell us all we're terrible people. And yet, you know, we we went at Bill O'Reilly uh, with everything we had, deservedly so, um, and they, on their side, probably felt very victimized by that. You know, I certainly will not conflate the two actions between Bill O'Reilly and Kathy Griffin, but I just think when you're at war, you know... Just, you know, wherever your ammunition's going to come from, if it hits in the right moment, the right zeitgeist, like, whoever provided it is, is just dead meat for a minute. Yeah, except Ted Nugent spent eight years advocating open-armed rebellion sure, against a course. black president, and now he's sitting behind the desk at the Oval Office. Sure. That much said, I wouldn't want to repress Ted Nugent's right to say whatever he wants, even if that's wango tango. Uh, you know, I think what, I think, look, what Kathy Griffin did whether you like it or not, is a piece of political art. And if you look at the political art that was being done in the Weimar Republic or whatever, you're not looking at anything that's particularly... Honestly, I think that it, for, for, for politically conscious art, it was actually fairly mercenary and kind of banal, but you know, she did it, and I find that you know, we have to defend her right to do that or we will not have the right to do much more milquetoast crap that, you know, that, that is much less offensive than, than what she did. It, it, it goes both ways. She has a right to, to, to put that out there. She also has to take the lumps, but we have to defend her right to put it out there. And that, and that a lot of people didn't is very disappointing. 
Let's talk about this double standard. We have uh, comedians, talk show hosts, um, pundits on the left and the right who are losing their jobs um, for, for saying or doing certain things. Um, and yet the President of the United States has not lost his job for committing numerous crimes um, and admitting... Ad, ad, admitting to having sexually assaulted women. So, uh, you know, uh, the double standard for me is that the person that bears the most responsibility, which is the leader of the free world, uh, should be, be held to the highest standard. And that seems to be the only guy who's keeping his job. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we hey, can... You can change that. Yeah. Well, Ed, well, Paul can change it by forcing his boss, Oprah, to run for office in 2020. So if there's anything we're going to take away from today... Oprah! Paul's going to go back to the own offices. And, and, and Bo Willeman as VP. So... Well, thank you so much. This was a, a fun panel. And God bless us all in America... I think that's how we end it. Thanks, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com.